Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Sherlux Book Club, where every six weeks, Heather and Dordina dissect the best books out there. Don't forget to sign up at community.sherlux.com to add your own thoughts to the discussion. Hello and welcome to the Sherlock Book Club podcast with Heather Steele and Rodina Blasky. Today we're joined by writer and comedian Monica Heisey, the author behind this year's biggest book, Really Good Actually. Originally from Toronto, she's been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vogue and New York Magazine and has written for some of the best comedies out there, including Sherlock's favourite, Shit's Creek and Working Moms. Really Good Actually was released in paperback at the end of September, making the Sunday Times bestseller list once again. In this podcast, the three of us are going to delve right into your book, and we're going to be discussing some of the comments that have been left by our book club members on the Shilux community. So if you haven't joined the community yet, we'll add in the notes below so you can join in all the conversations. So shall we dive in and assume, like always, you know, spoilers alert, we're going to describe everything that happens in the book. So when I interviewed you back in January for a thing we have called My Life in Books, I asked you who your favourite author was, and this is what you said. You said, Sheila Hetty's narrator says in How Should a Person Be, you have to know where the funny is. If you know where the funny is, then you know everything. Did you always want to work in comedy? I, I think I've just always been attracted to things that, even if they were sad, had a mix of light and dark in them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when like an interest specifically in comedy kind of emerged, because it's I've just always been interested in representing life as it is and nothing is ever totally tragic or totally hilarious. There's always like a mix of funny and sad in everything. Your debut novel is a story of heartbreak, something nearly everyone has experienced at one time or another. What are your experiences of heartbreak and how much of that made it into the book? (laughs) Um, Well, the book is loosely based on my own emotional experience, if not experience, experience getting divorced at a very young age myself. I got married when I was 26 and got divorced when I was 28. Um, And I found the situation very isolating. And I think I was sort of writing my way out of the problem of feeling like the only person who was going through something like that, which is like a classic, I think, heartbroken impulse to think it's just you. But as you say, literally every it's one of the most universal experiences on Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so bizarre that something that we know is so common feels so isolating and like it's only happening to you or more dramatically like it's the worst version of it is happening to you yeah yeah and in your um in your relationship were you like Maggie together for a long time before the marriage yeah yeah we'd been together for a very long time and we got married he was a little older than me so all of his friends were kind of getting married and we did what I think a lot of people do they've been in a couple for the right amount of time and they're going to a lot of gorgeous parties and they think, oh, we're in love. We could have one of these. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're known for being a writer on Shit's Creek, as we mentioned. Uh, it's one of my favorite comedies. Got me through lockdown for sure. Um, how do you manage to inject humor into what we were saying is obviously a really sad situation, the end of a relationship. There can be lots of reasons why relationships end, but when it is the end, um, it is hard to see the funny side. And yet you have so many 
clever ways of doing it. And one of the my favorite ways that you did it was through the lists. My favorite one of them was actually at the end when it was uh, her noticing things her therapist had said to her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is really cutting the addiction to buying shirts Um, and then various other things that were perhaps a bit more serious. But do you think Maggie finds those lists funny? Because as the reader, you obviously read them as funny. (laughs) Yeah, I think the whole book is about the difference, you know, even down to the title is about the difference between how we're actually doing and how we say we're doing and the the face that we present to other people and the actual um, experiences that we're having internally. So all of those lists, the Google search histories, the conversations with the therapist, those are kind of the only parts of the book that are outside of Maggie's kind of first person. Mm. And they're the first evidence that we get that she's maybe not doing as well mm. as she's saying that she's doing. And obviously there's there's a sort of a twist you know, two thirds into the book and we find out how very badly she's been doing. Um, but those those lists, those short form pieces, I wanted to be kind of like objective evidence, right? Like there's nothing more confronting about your own neuroses than your Google search history. It's such it's such raw data of how the inside of your mind is looking at that moment. Um, and so I wanted, even though Maggie's been saying, I'm processing it, I'm dealing with it. You know, she's still at home Googling like legal definition, cruelty, you know, how to get over heartbreak, you know, dial a bottle, whatever. Yeah. Were they really fun to write? Like sort of, I guess they're almost like a short form, not poetry as such, but almost like a tiny essay of like this insight into one person in not very many words. Yeah, they were the first things I wrote for the book because I was kind of intimidated by writing something as as large as a novel. It's the longest thing I've ever written by myself. Um, and I wanted to start on kind of solid ground and I write a lot of short form humor Mm -hmm. pieces. So I sort of approached each of those like a short form humor piece, like, you know, what could this snapshot be into the mind of a woman who's crumbling basically? Mm -hmm. How could I show that in different kind of contemporary ways? Um, you know, like Tinder exchanges and customer service emails with I thought the one that was really clever was the sort of itemized billing time of the lawyer as well I think that was one of the first ones where it was a sort of an outsider's like you say list Mm. that wasn't anything that she'd written down herself that was yeah gave you a real insight into exactly how she was feeling (laughs) yeah yeah and I think it's really interesting as well when you're reading the book you you kind of get sucked into Maggie's world and her her voice her head and where she's at and like you just touched on you you kind of maybe don't pick up how bad she was Mm -hmm. because there's lots of distractions and it's written about in a really funny way like she's you can try every free class in the city and kind Mm -hmm. of do yoga every day basically (laughs) you can um obviously there's the dating apps more on that later there's lots of things so you feel like through her distractions and and her friendship group she's she's really busy and she's got lots going on but at the same time she's obviously really lonely but I think we don't maybe quite realize how well I didn't feel I had picked up on how bad things were um and that kind of um snapshot of time and what she's dealing with obviously gives you a sense that maybe things aren't going quite her way what did you feel was the kind of the big turning point where she goes more rapidly downhill I think I I wanted the reader to have the experience that you had to kind of be alongside with her, you know, distracted and feeling a little bit upbeat about it. Like, oh, this is a bit of a mess, but she's trundling along because it's a surprise to Maggie as well that she's kind of doing as badly as she's doing. I think we uh, live in a 
a time when it's very easy to distract yourself and you're kind of encouraged to do so. You know, you go through a breakup and everyone's like, stay busy, do self-care, you know, take a thousand baths with a face mask (laughs) on and you'll be fine at the end of it. And actually there's like difficult emotional work to do that you can really easily feel like you're putting in the time doing other things that are not, are not that emotional work. Um, so I think for Maggie, there's a couple of times she runs into someone at a, the supermarket, word vomits at them about mm-hmm. her breakup mm-hmm. and then finds, goes home and finds out that the woman she's run into is going through something much more difficult and serious. Um, I think that's kind of like the first big signpost to me. And then um, obviously after she has a big fight with Simon, this guy that she's been seeing who's been kind of promising and she just absolutely torpedoes it sort of for reasons that she can't understand herself. Um, I think that's like quite a low point. And then she goes to a wedding and behaves very badly. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliantly written that whole section. (laughs) So one of our uh, Sherlock's book club members said on the community, I really enjoyed this book. Lots of laughs out, lots of laugh out loud moments. Did Maggie remind anyone else of Marianne Keyes' Rachel? Also, so many relatable moments in the book, particularly around her social media use and post-breakup meltdown. So obviously Maggie's very active online and sort of removed from her own reality, as we've been discussing. So yeah, one of her outlets is social media and her need to constantly record and upload her experiences. You know, what's your sort of take on loneliness in the age of the internet? Because that seemed to be a big theme. Yeah, I mean, I think I was very interested in the ways that... um, social media kind of makes real this paranoid fear that everyone has during a breakup anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very common during a breakup to feel like people are looking at you and judging you and thinking about your choices and what you're doing. And then that is sort of what we're signing up for with social media. So whereas before it might've been kind of some self-pitying thinking, we've all opted in to varying degrees Mm -hmm. to um, a system where that is kind of what's happening So Maggie was torturing herself emotionally, you know, in an abstract way. But then she is also like, she's online. She's looking at her ex's profile, which we all know you shouldn't do. That bit where she's (laughs) looking using the uh, Janet the Cat Instagram account to stalk John. That was a touch. A low point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think Maggie in the book was sort of like this repository for all of these impulses that I had had Mm -hmm. during the breakup Mm -hmm. like the book is like a worst case scenario of like what would it have been like if you did call every time that you got the urge to call this person yeah what would it have been like if you did use your cat's Instagram account because the thought crossed my mind but I you know like managed to not behave in that way and I just poor Maggie kind of like removed any coping mechanism and good judgment that I had had and thought what would the the big car crash version of this have been because it felt my own breakup felt awful and was very difficult. And it's not like I behaved Mm -hmm. perfectly during it. But um, with Maggie, I kind of just like let everything go off the rails in quite spectacular fashion. So another one of our readers said, or called it her version of a millennial Bridget Jones. She's like, everything and nothing has changed in the last 25 years. The same old anxieties, but technology has added a whole new level of angst. Updating, what a jungle. So obviously online dating is the sort of, one of the first things I guess Maggie does once she does kind of try and get herself out there quite quickly mm. and just sort of see what she's been missing. Um, so, you know, she's navigating out, working out who wants a relationship, who just wants to hook up. How does Maggie use dating at this stage of her life? Like how 
I was really interested. One thing that I wanted to play with with Maggie that had no bearing on my own life was that generation of people who, if they were in a serious relationship in their teens, early 20s, and then um, became single in their early 30s or like late 20s, missed the the origins of, mm-hmm. of online dating, missed like did all the apps in particular. Um, and so the way to be, to get into a relationship that young, come out of it and have to deal with all of the disorienting parts of a regular breakup and the way we meet people and speak to them and flirt with them. And, uh, you know, the mores of dating had changed completely almost overnight, how strange that would feel. Um, and also hopefully there's a little bit as well of a sense that it's kind of exciting. Like mm. I think the first time you kind of log on to a dating app after a breakup, especially if you've been in a relationship for a long time, there can be this crazy sense of plenty, like, oh my God. Yeah, a bit look, like yeah. it in a sweet show. Yeah, yeah look yeah. at all these people out yeah. here. Um, obviously then you start online dating and you realize the percentage of people you actually want to speak to is lower. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I wanted it to be something that felt kind of exciting mm-hmm. and even a little bit um, emancipatory for her. It's her first chance to kind of experience dating women, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. She gets to like toggle the thing to show men and women, which is such a small moment, but can be quite a big deal to say something like that so concretely to yeah, yourself. Yeah. Um, so I want it to be a mix of like a fun and a bit of a nightmare. I did actually say, yeah, I there was a lot of sex in the book, even if it's just thoughts or conversations about sex. But yeah, was it important to you to sort of represent different types of sex with different people and sort of explore Maggie's bisexuality or, you know, even not discovering it about herself because she kind of says that she'd thought perhaps, Mm -hmm. but she'd never really had a chance to explore it or really think about it because she was in a relationship with John. Yeah, it was kind of a fine line because I wanted it to be something that both felt important and felt kind of like, yeah, that's just how life yeah. works, you know? I didn't want it to be like a very special episode mm-hmm, moment mm-hmm. where she finally comes out and her life has changed forever. It's like she's quietly known this about herself mm-hmm. for some time. It's exciting to get to explore that. But it's not – she's someone who's who's lucky and her friends are supportive, her family's supportive. She's not uh, experiencing a lot of hardship around being herself. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to show a woman kind of doing that in a casual way. Mm-hmm. She's not – you know, I think her, her therapist sort of calls her up a little bit towards the end of the book about how seriously are you taking these dates with women, which I think is is a real um, thing for, like, people at the beginning of discovering their queerness. They sort of still do think of their relationships with the same gender as kind of, like, outside of their thing that they're more used to. Um, but I didn't want the whole book to be mm. this expert. You know, the story is not someone coming out. It's just someone who is also in the process of understanding their sexuality is also trying to understand Mm -hmm. themselves emotionally. Yeah, I thought it all felt very like, yeah, just like you say, celebratory and just like, this is what Mm. life can be like. It didn't feel like, yeah, like you say, it was something that was being pushed on. I thought it was all, yeah, a really positive representation. You mentioned therapy there. Maggie's initially almost sort of repelled by Simon because of his sort of therapy speak and the fact that he's undergoing counselling or, you know, certainly did after his own demise of his relationship. Uh, But she is eventually persuaded to see a therapist herself. And it's in this first scene in Helen's office that Maggie's sort of repressed hopes of a reconciliation with John materialise. And we actually hear from John for the very first time, sort of in his own voice. Uh, Was it important to the plot that Maggie sort of eventually sought professional help? Yeah, I think 
uh, I had had an ongoing relationship with my therapist prior to my divorce. Mm -hmm. And I think the experience of understanding myself and working on myself and having this kind of like relatively objective third party to talk to about what I was feeling helped me kind of end the relationship Mm -hmm. and helped me process the end of the relationship. So again, like if this book is the kind of nightmare version of a breakup, I was like, what would it have been like without the most important tool that I had? And also what would it have been like if not only did I not have that tool, but I was actively rejecting the idea of it. Cause there are lots of people who are very against the concept Mm -hmm. of therapy or they think you only go to therapy if you're already, if you're really busted. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's almost like they think it's like going to the hospital to set a broken bone. Mm -hmm. You have a specific problem. You take it to therapy for six weeks and then you're like completed and then you carry on. Or it's something only wealthy people do. Yeah. That's true. I mean, and there are a bit indulgent somehow. And there are real cost barriers. That is real. Mm. Um, But there are also a lot of, um, you know, resources for people for whom cost is a barrier. Mm-hmm. And well, she makes sacrifices in the book in order to go to therapy. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I Which actually is really like that you wrote that in there mm. because obviously it is not available to everybody, mm-hmm. um, especially in kind of stretched health services in, in the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but she chose to make lifestyle decisions yeah. to enable it to happen. And I think that was really important. It just showed, it emphasized how she realized that this was where she needed to go. Yeah. No yeah. matter what. Yeah, yeah. And Maggie's doing something that I think is easy to do to be like, I don't have the money for this, Mm -hmm. but then spending tons of money online shopping Mm -hmm. that you don't really have either. And it it is about kind of as you know, where you're prioritizing. Do you think that she had to also get to the absolute bottom (laughs) in order? I mean, it is, you you hear it with all kinds of things. It's addiction and drugs and Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. You have to reach that rock bottom in order to recognize you need help. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did think that with, with Maggie, because she's been so, skeptical of mm-hmm. therapy that it would have to get pretty bad pretty pretty bad and kind of a, in a public way pretty yeah bad, yeah um to to send her there but I I loved that bit in that first therapy session because I think obviously I was reading it and engaging with it all and seeing what you know learning what Maggie was like and sort of wondering like everyone was like what the relationship between John and Maggie was because we never saw it in the beginning but I was still like really surprised when she did sort of have not the outburst, but when she did manage to get him on the phone and we actually heard him speaking and then she sort of launched into her. Let's get back together. We can do this thing. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, I didn't realize that's how she was actually truly feeling. Would, would you say she's a little bit of an unreliable narrator? Yeah, I do think so. And I also think that the sort of begging someone to get back with you isn't even necessarily a reflection of your feeling. Mm-hmm. I think Maggie is someone who for most of the novel is kind of running full speed away from her emotions. And the the fastest way I think that she can think of to end this feeling is to end the, the situation that caused it. So even though she was the one who initiated the breakup, she knows it's not a good thing for them to be together anymore. Um, she's so sick of feeling bad and she's so stubbornly refusing to actually feel bad that she's like, oh, maybe we should cancel it, cancel it, never mind, never mind. You know, and it's a very tempting feeling. I feel like any kind of difficult experience, you know, halfway through you're always like, or we don't do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think that's that's where that's coming from for Maggie. And it's like she's an unreliable narrator because she's not actually engaging with the emotional reality Mm -hmm. of the situation. Yeah, or not being true to herself when we see her sort of Mm -hmm. describing things to her friends or... 
yeah journals and other things like that <laughs> for sure um if we can just go back to simon mm. um i loved his line I spend a lot of time worrying that I'm fundamentally a worse person than I thought I was. How can you tell if something you did was a stupid mistake or a real sign of your character? How would you answer that? I think, I guess, the maybe easy answer, but also probably true answer is that it can be both things. And that if you look at your character as the accumulation of the things that you do, so doing one bad thing doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person. But if you're constantly feeling disappointed by your own choices that you're making, by the own actions that you're taking, then that's probably a sign of your character. So one individual thing, you know, that's one sign. And then the thing you choose to do after that. So in Simon's case, he was um, he had an affair. and um, But the thing he chose to do after that was to be honest about it and try and work on himself. So I think that would be, you know you can look at those things together and it's not like one one action will define you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and he then does become, everything he does is so eager mm -hmm. and so kind and so caring and yeah. so above and beyond that you almost feel like he's constantly trying to right that wrong. Yes. Even if it's to other people and not to the person he actually wronged. I wanted him to be someone who also had problems. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I mm -hmm. didn't want him to seem like, this perfect guy that came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I wanted there to be, there's a, first of all, there's this huge thing from his past. So we know that whatever was going on in his last relationship, he wasn't faithful to her. Um, but also you're totally right. The way that he's behaving is kind of overcompensating and he's making himself this like seemingly perfect new possibility, but he might not really be right for Maggie either. Yeah. Um, Even though as a reader, you kind of really want him to be. Cause you're yeah. like, oh, this could be your fix because you know, she's so, desperately searching for a, a yeah. fix at the same time it is that feeling like oh he's just kind of like you can imagine that if he smiled he would like ping <laughs> out of his teeth or something that kind of like too good to be true yes I think yeah. I really wanted there to be an undercurrent of something a little bit uh not emotionally dangerous necessarily mm. but the possibility of future conflict with this person as well mm -hmm. You know, like it's not, I didn't want it to be a story like, oh, that guy wasn't right. But the good news is this other guy was right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the possibility of another connection is there, but it's not as straightforward as that's happy. Yeah, because there's a point where he comes and meets her friends yes. mm -hmm. and she sort of hasn't really told um, told any of them that he's coming and she's mm -hmm. just trying to get back on track with her with her friendships. And I found the way you wrote that group of friends really interesting for lots of reasons. And I think many of us are certain point in our lives. There are people that we're friends with just because we've always been friends with them. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who grow with us and who like Amy come into her life later and, and Maris who, you know, people you meet through work or who are of a different generation to you and everyone comes and offers something else. Mm. But I think many of us have the school friends or the college university friends who are kind of just there <laughs> and you take for granted. And she sort of doesn't treat her friends that well, mm. although clearly she's not herself and yeah. is going through a terrible <laughs> time. But then I sometimes felt like they weren't always, I don't know, maybe because you don't hear their point of view, they've yeah. had enough as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's a balancing act. It's a two-way street. But um, how did you decide to construct that friendship group in that way? I think I wanted, so the, the friend group, I think, is the most heavily borrowed from my real life. There's very close analogs in my life to um, the Laurens and uh, Clive. And have, they, and have they said, yeah, that's me. I know you've written that. Yeah. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> What's your group chat called again? I saw it in the thank yous. At the oh, end. the five poots. Um, do you know, like, when Demi Lovato took that poot Lovato picture? There's a very strange <laughs> picture of Demi Lovato, and for some reason, the internet named that care like version of Demi Lovato poot, and we all like really identified with her. Yeah, why not? <laughs> that's, so that's how group names. That's start, the group. Right? <laughs> <laughs> One of those stories that really falls apart in the telling. Yeah, yeah. You're like, hmm, I guess that's nothing. That's true friendship, though, isn't it? When you, you know, bond over something. Um, yeah. So they, yeah, I, I was speaking to them very actively while I was writing the book. So they knew about it. I was reading all of these books about kind of sad young women. Mm-hmm. And they all seemed really uniquely friendless. Yeah, that's true. If I think about certain books. They were so yeah. isolated. Um And I'm sure there's all kinds of narrative reasons for doing that. But I was like, God, when I've been in the saddest places I've been in, that's when I felt luckiest to have the friends that I have. Um, And they're, you know, I don't know how else you claw yourself out of one of those holes if you're not kind of like yelling up to your friends (laughs) who are waiting for you on the surface. Um, So I wanted the book to be about more than any man, more than any hobby or trying dating again or whatever, to be about the friends that are there for you during difficult times and, you know, crucially to see them getting fed up with her as well, mm. because she is being quite self-indulgent by the end of it. And they're all real people with their own problems as mm. well. You know, like no, no friend is like the rom-com friend who's just waiting in a cupboard to open the door and be like, wait, the guy from the bet is your new boss. Like they have <laughs> their own stuff going on. Yeah. And when they choose to come care for you, they're choosing to put aside their own struggles or their own joys or their own obligations. And I wanted to kind of celebrate those people. Yeah, and there was a real sadness, actually, when she realized there were things happening in her friends' lives that she did not know about. Like or they the were actively keeping or, a secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I found that actually a really touching moment mm. in the book because I think we do all value our friends so much. And just like you say, like whether it's your urban family, whether because your own family is too far away or whatever reasons there might be, it it is really shocking to feel that something massive's happened to one of them and you, you just don't know about it mm-hmm. um and I wonder if that is also such a, a was such a big wake-up call for her and realized then she had all those bridges to build to get back to um to the group being what it was but also because that's part of that's kind of wrapped up in her identity because they've been friends for so long mm-hmm. like we're defined to an extent by the people around mm-hmm. us and how we interact with them yeah I think Maggie is also someone who uh is coming to realize that she has not been thinking very clearly about a few different elements of her life. And one of them as well is the 
which is I think very common, is like the hierarchy of kinds of love and putting romantic love mm. right at the top. Mm. I think the love from her friends is so freely and easily given. And maybe it was kind of a struggle in her relationship with John. She felt like she had to kind of earn that love and to realize that this easily given love from her friends is equal to any romantic love. And just because it's easily given doesn't mean that it's in any less valuable or yeah, important. Or to be taken for granted. Mm. Or to be taken for mm. granted, exactly. So I think she has to have a bit of a wake-up call across a few different areas of her life and coming to understand and appreciate the intensity of care and love from her friends and to crucially to give it back to them mm. is a, a huge part of her kind of growth in the book. I really enjoyed the character development of Amy because obviously that's someone that she didn't know isn't part of this core friendship group. Obviously it went from like this big messy night out to, you know, being a very close and loving friendship with them sort of living together. Was it important for you to show sort of two different women having very different experiences of divorce at a young age? Yeah, I think I wanted to write through... First of all, Amy is kind of a wish fulfillment thing for me because mm -hmm. I would have loved to have Amy, yeah. <laughs> a, a friend who was going through the same thing as me. Um, Amy's also kind of a useful foil for Maggie because mm -hmm. she's someone that I think Maggie might traditionally think she was a bit smarter than. Mm -hmm. But actually, Amy is handling her divorce with so much more grace and uh, emotional intelligence than Maggie is, like, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so it's another kind of sign that Maggie doesn't really know herself or other people as well as she thinks that she does. I meet a lot of women like Amy, but I don't, I'm not close to any women like Amy. And I kind of wanted to write through why not and what it might mm. look like to be close. I think Amy and Maggie are very different on the surface and their interests seem to be different, but they're, they have a lot that bonds them as well. And she has a lot that crucially that she can learn from someone like Amy, who's like, very sincere and where Maggie is sarcastic and she's very straightforward where Maggie likes to make a joke instead. And Amy just like loves and feels hard. And Maggie is kind of too scared to do that. And also I just, she was the most fun. Yeah. She's yeah. just yeah. so funny. <laughs> just, they're like throwing up in her hand and they're having a problem. <laughs> and they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I so, just, some of us have been there. Yeah. <laughs> The bit in the um, cycle spin club. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It was like, I mean, it feels to me like the biggest romantic gesture yeah. in the book. Yeah. And um, and, it, and it was just, I kind of was reading it thinking, oh, my God, where's this going? Yeah. Like she's going to fall off the bike. Or she, someone's going to, like, she's going to pass out, have a heart attack or she's not even. And then it was like, kind of like, she was at sort of, what was it, 12 out of 37. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that's so much better than I thought she was yeah. going to do. The way she was describing it, because... I don't like those classes. I was but having say, done that one or like two, my worst nightmare. Like horrendous. I've done a couple with the leaderboard. I do not oh, care. Wow. That's not motivating no, for me. No. Um, <laughs> but the yeah. way you wrote it and the way that you talked about the instructor and the music and the, all the people, different people yeah. there. Oh my god, it was so funny. Oh, thank you. I really wanted to to take like a very classic rom com mm -hmm. trope, you know, the big public gesture, and and kind of you know, again, that's like a sign that Maggie's awareness of love outside of kind of a romantic mm -hmm. context is she's like oh god I have to fight for this relationship in a way that the traditional romantic way that one would do it even if this relationship is not itself romantic I'm so glad they get back together <laughs> and then they live happily ever after but that the same on the similar similar thing of like gestures and you know, non-romantic love I love the bit when yeah Amy instigated everyone going around the table at the birthday party and saying what they loved about Maggie but then that 
sudden revelation that yeah at Maggie's wedding she told the gang how mm -hmm. much that they meant to her like I liked that that was sort of held back till the end and yeah and I think we maybe get a sense that she's coming back to herself mm -hmm. a little bit at that birthday um which is was important to me you know to be like she, this woman is not this is not Maggie's baseline yeah <laughs> you know there I think there's been it's been interesting hearing reader reactions because some people are very annoyed that Maggie is a bad friend or selfish mm. um but I don't know anyone going through quite an intense, difficult, mm -hmm. emotional time that doesn't become a little selfish mm -hmm. or doesn't become a little bit of a kind of nightmare to be around because they're, you know, like most of their brain is occupied doing something else. They're processing something else or they're not processing or something else, hiding. which is worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like with the student who wants to... Um, who, who yeah. she's got Sorry, an appointment with and then she's like no 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 <laughs> email me she's like no I did email you and you, you told me to come yeah, and see you yeah. <laughs> and you just feel that sense of um that she's just like turning her back on mm. things that matter to her and mm -hmm. things that obviously en enrich her life because she she clearly does well she started off presumably loving her yes. her job um and her role and her students mm -hmm. and obviously the whole passion for all those things that's just another side where something's just slipped away. Yeah. She can't face it. She's got blinders on totally. Mm. And and again, I think, you know, going through something difficult, particularly heartbreak, which is such a weird one because it both is awful and terrible, but it's not like someone's dying or someone's sick or, you know, it's, it's, it's just an emotional pain, which is not to minimize it because it's, it's horrendous. But I think you forget, you can, you can become very myopic and forget that, you know, your student has something going on as well. You just don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And your friends all have their own challenges. And, and Maggie's just totally lost sight of the fact that other people are feeling the same things she's feeling. Yeah. I was going to touch on Maris, actually, because that was another amazing friendship that developed throughout the course of the book. Was that something you always had in mind, a sort of intergenerational sort of friendship? Actually, I had... So when I first started writing the book, I had a long phone conversation with my agent, Mariah, in America... We talked for like an hour and a half, just like talked through the different kind of themes and things that I wanted to look at. And she threw out different ideas throughout it as well. And at one point she said, I would love it if she like uh, went to a wedding with an older woman that she doesn't know very well. And she was like, I don't know where that came from. And I was like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I agree with you. And then I kind of reverse engineered Maris from that knowing that we were building towards this strange wedding mm -hmm. you know who who would it be how could she know them and how could they become close enough for that to make any sense and I liked the idea as well of Maggie as someone who doesn't have any sense of like hindsight or sense of like the future and Maris is someone who has this like really long view of life mm -hmm. who's been through a divorce herself who's now widowed and has survived both catastrophes you know so she's like a living uh, a living proof to Maggie that she'll be fine, she'll survive, yeah. and Maggie just can't see it at all. Well, because I guess as well, it sort of pointed out towards the end that, you know, she's like, oh, I didn't even know you had a daughter. Mm. And again, it just shows how she was just sort of being very mm -hmm. insular and just only focused on herself. And again, I wanted it to be, as with Simon, like not just a straightforward, here's someone who's going to teach you about life and she's wise. Like Maris is being generous towards Maggie because she's kind of sublimating her conflict with her daughter, mm -hmm. you know? She's someone who's not really in contact with her daughter right now and is is being uh, generous towards Maggie, but has also her own self-interested motivations for that and her own kind of limits of empathy. So I, I wanted everyone that Maggie encounters to kind of 
have their own struggles as well um because that's life yeah I enjoyed uh Maris's uh housemates what would you call them the golden girls that she lived with (laughs) and Lydia the dog which I think as well was I mean personally I think John should have left Janet so (laughs) yeah and can we just have a moment for the pet names that are like people's proper names (laughs) but yeah I, I think you know Maggie obviously needed Janet and probably would have felt a lot better if she'd have had a nice her furry friend there to sort of be within the apartment the cat really has like ignited something yeah. in people <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked Lydia as well and I was pleased yeah. that Lydia eventually got on the bed as well <laughs> but it was nice like the fact it, it actually did get her out the house and got mm. her walking and sort of taking on a tiny bit of responsibility when she wasn't really doing anything at and the do time. something for someone else yes. exactly yeah. yeah so I liked both those inclusions yeah pets are such a good way to practice caring for other people and mm-hmm. also yourself yeah. for sure should we talk about John? <laughs> I mean, we've just got to talk about John. Could, so most of the questions when we said, oh, what would you like to mm. ask were about John. Interesting. And, or, or mainly, I guess I'll read a couple of them out. Um, I'd be really interested to know if the ex-husband's eventual response was always the plan. I was on tenterhooks waiting to hear his version. And I wonder if Monica always had that plan for him or if she considered other options for the ending. Somebody else has said, my question to Monica is, did he ever consider writing the story from John's point of view? I would have loved to have heard his side of things. Then again, I like that his character is largely left to the reader's imagination. And somebody else would love to know the thinking behind leaving out John's side of the story. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I always knew that John would not be a big presence in the story. I think because I wanted the book to be about the experience of being without someone for the first time, rather than I think a lot of breakup books and breakup movies end up being relationship books Mm -hmm. because they're about dissecting what went wrong in the relationship. Could the relationship have worked if they'd done something else? Is there a new relationship that could change everything? Um, Will these two people reconcile whatever? And actually the question that I wanted to ask was like, what do you do when you're suddenly alone? Mm -hmm. So I thought the easiest way to kind of maximize Maggie's feeling of aloneness was to just keep John as far out of it as possible. There was a draft where he wasn't in it at all. And that felt a little unsatisfying. Mm. I think it was important to kind of hear from him. And then as well, like as a tool for saying like, obviously we don't, we're not getting the whole side of the story with Maggie, you know, just make that literal. and, And the other side of the story suddenly is on the phone. Um, So I knew I didn't really want him to be there um, very much, but I also was trying to find a balance that would be kind of satisfying for people. I was really kind of up and down with what I thought, who I thought John was and what (laughs) he was about and where, and I think when I was reading it, I was trying to work out where does the blame lie here? Mm. Because you kind of want that um, clear, I was almost looking for the clear markers Mm -hmm. because obviously it's comforting as a reader to sort of know and have some sure, sort of surety about things. But then at the same time, when I finished and I looked back and I actually read the first chapter again and she writes all the, well, says all the things in her mind about why I broken up. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that, but his thing. And it was sort of something she had done or something he had mm-hmm. done or whatever. And so I felt, well, there's obviously two people who essentially weren't in love with each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that it had, there had been one really big bad thing that someone had done. And I think that felt kind of realistic to me that a lot of relationships, the demise will be down to 
lots of little things and that actually the final straw can be the kind of you didn't empty the dishwasher or something <laughs> yeah. like it's yeah. not gonna always be an affair or yeah. something I found that first chapter or that, that long list that actually very hard hitting I've had some like you know not not unpleasant endings of relationships but definitely ones like that where it is just a sort of very slow mm-hmm. sort of cool that's the end then oh, yeah <laughs> but I think that can be normal for lots of people I thought it was yeah very powerful even though there were lots of funny sort of things that you're like oh not that but yeah I thought yeah I thought it was yeah an amazing way to start the book because I think lots of people can probably identify with that it it piques the interest of the reader to be like okay what happened Mm -hmm. well and I think that's one of the things that kind of drives Maggie insane is this awareness that her kind of audience or uh, friends people on social media whatever would want a story as well right Mm. people want there to be a clear villain and a clear uh, good guy and a clear winner and a clear Mm -hmm. loser. And those are are simpler stories than I think a lot of relationships offer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted it to be that that list at the beginning was kind of the first thing that I wrote for the book um, because I wanted to get a really clear sense of the ways that this relationship and particularly Maggie as a person were similar to me and, mm-hmm. and the ways that she and the relationship were different to mine. Um, and so writing that all out felt like I was on kind of solid ground with yeah. what had happened with them, which was a quite, quite a different story to my own breakup. I just wanted to look at like, you know, what is it when you just sort of, it just, your relationship kind of just crumbles in your hands. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting as well, because obviously the friends weren't necessarily rooting for her at the beginning either. Mm. They all seemed quite like, no, it's definitely over. <laughs> and, you know, like, like leave, leave it where things are. But yeah, interesting. Because then you maybe thought in the back of your head, like, oh, maybe there's something we don't know. And maybe that is still the case because we never hear John's perspective. Yeah, I mean, but. you kind of assume like they must have all been out together mm. with, with John and Maggie there. And all the friends were probably sitting watching this car crash yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, when are they going to just split up yeah. and it's going to be done? Your friends often know before you do, Yeah, I yeah. think. Usually they don't tell you. No. And then, you know, you, the, you kind of like are in a standoff and then you're like, I'm not sure this is working. And they're all like, yeah. <laughs> but then you never want to say that too early in case no. they get back together. Oh, God, nightmare. <laughs> you said in another interview that if you can write um, a dinner party scene, you can write anything. Mm. Um. We've loved how you write for TV. Obviously, we've watched lots. And we love how you write for novels. So which do you find easier and why? And um, did you write the novel imagining it being played out on the screen? I didn't, you know. I think I the novel, I was excited to write this story as a novel because it's so interior and it's so about the difference between thoughts and the expression of those thoughts. Um, or the denial of those thoughts or whatever. Um, so I thought, oh, well, this will be a good exercise for a novel because you can you can really get into someone's head and you don't have to have any voiceover or anything. You can just kind of like, you're just hearing very, in this book in particular, like in an almost oppressive way, everything that Maggie thinks and feels. Um, so I was almost like, I don't even know how you would do that for television. Obviously, we've now optioned the book for tv so we're figuring it out I was going to ask about that (laughs) we're figuring it out um and then there are certain scenes in the book that I could see working in a television show Mm -hmm. but I for the most part wasn't thinking that way I actually my editor um Kish got sent me a note after the first draft came in that was like you haven't described any rooms (laughs) 
that anyone is in. Because in TV, there's the whole art department and a production design team whose entire job that they're so good at is to do the rooms and make the rooms reflective of the characters and make right. them feel real and lived in. Oh, that's so interesting. I think I was like, oh God, it's I'm the art department now as yeah. well. So it was about kind of like realizing how much responsibility I had as, as a novelist and then also starting to enjoy that with that responsibility came a huge amount of control because so much of television writing is is compromising with people, compromising with logistics limitations, you know, what the weather is like on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want it to be raining in a novel, it can just rain at the exact amount that you would like. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can you tell us about the adaptation? Is there much you can say There's at this stage? There's not much to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on the pilot script right now, and... Um, it's, yeah, it's with uh, a company in America and a company in England are going to kind of co-produce together. And I'm, it's been really interesting. We basically, like, uh, optioned it and then the strike happened. So I've only just gotten back into drafting. Of course, yeah. Um, and it's been really nice to kind of have a little bit of space from the book and then come back into it to figure out all of the ways that I'm going to have to figure out to externalize what's quite an internal book. I can't wait to see the casting. Oh, I know. Me too. God. <laughs> I can already, yeah, sort of picture in my head. And then, yeah, did when you set out to write it and write about divorce, did you ever think, like, when you were writing it, like, hopefully this might help somebody else going through something similar? Or were you more just like, I just want to write this novel about this experience and I see think, where it goes? I think in a kind of abstract way, I definitely wrote something that I would have liked to read at the time. Mm-hmm. So... You know, if you extend out from that, then obviously if it would help me, it might help other people in the same situation. I just like when I was going through it myself, I just really wanted to read or watch anything. And actually there isn't very much about the particular experience of being a young person going through a divorce because it's not something that young people have historically done a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all sort of people in their 40s and 50s and many decades older and income brackets higher than we were at the time. Um, So yeah, I just kind of wrote the thing I would have liked to read myself. Amazing. And then finally, yeah, what's next and what are you working on at the moment besides the pilot and Um, everything else? I have a romantic comedy series coming out on Sky in December. It's called Smothered. It's also on Now TV. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's like a six episode rom-com. Amazing. Who's in it? Um, An an amazing uh, couple of actors. The the whole cast is incredible. Um, so Ashling B is in it. Oh, I love um, her. Rebecca I love Lucy her. Taylor, who met, oh, is yeah. self-esteem. She's is, had such a year. She's or so two years. talented. It's actually unbelievable. Um, Harry Trevaldin is in it. The the core couple are these incredible actors named John Pointing and Danielle Vitalis, who are just like a young Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. I'm obsessed with them. Um, yeah, I really hope people like it. Oh yeah, that sounds. But December, did you say? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's really soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Perfect. sounds like just the kind of thing over the festive break. Yes, to... the the finale uh, is a Christmas episode, so it's just takes us right into Christmas. Oh, that's oh, exciting. <laughs> cool. Something to look forward to. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank really you. appreciate it. And then, yeah, just before we go, um, so we're just announcing that the next book we're going to be doing is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doa. So we decided to do a book that's been out for quite a long time that lots of people might have already enjoyed and read. Georgina, I know you're oh, a big fan. love this book. A big yeah. fan. So we're not going to do the next podcast until January because we thought with the festive break, 
weekend, you know, it's that time of year where everyone's super busy. So I'll give everyone, if you haven't read it before, a bit more time to get stuck in. And also the Netflix series comes out really soon as well. Yeah, before this year, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it's this month, November. Oh. So uh, yes, we've got lots of things we can talk about in January. Um, we will add all the links below so you could join in with the Shillets community and get involved. And yeah. We'll see you in January. Um, so thank you so much for watching and listening. If you did like that, please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.